0: Since it's been a couple hours, since you heard from me previously, I'm going to just review real fast, and then we'll dive right in to the origin of our own species. We covered the first three points in the, in the previous lecture, two three lectures ago, however long ago that was. Started very broad, asked the question, who do you trust? Because that's really, I think, what it comes down to for anyone who's lay level, and I applied that even to me. If it's a physics question, geology question, that's the same for me. I'm not a geologist, I'm not a physicist. It comes down to who I trust. We also asked the question, why are we still having this debate from the 19th century today? And I argued that it's because this question, the origin of species, of which our own species is a subset of that question, that question is a fundamentally genetic question. And so we have not had the direct scientific evidence with which to answer it until now. That's really the fundamental reason this still exists today. We looked at the Non-human species, very briefly, both from a genetic and a non-genetic standpoint, I argued that the evolutionary evidences that fail to reject universal common ancestry also fail to reject the modern young earth creationist view. Now I want to focus on very specifically on the human genetic data, and if you've already gotten a copy of the book, you'll know that the chapter, chapter 10 on human genetics, is organized around these four questions. Who do we come from? Ancestry. When did we arise? The time scale. And, of course, the big, the big question for this evening, how many people did we come from? And geography is, is thrown in there, too. You heard some of that from Dr. Benema. Out of Africa, uh, there would be a different geography, Erarat, basically, Middle East, for the Young Earth View. I'll put the population size later. You'll see why in a moment. It's related to the first two questions, and actually I'm going to deal with the first two together because you can't separate those as well. So this is one of the remarkable facts of the modern era. I'd say maybe uh, 20 years ago you 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 could deal with the age of the earth and divorce it from the question of biology. It's becoming impossible to do so now. Biology is not neutral on the age of the earth. There is a clock in DNA. It records time and this really presses the question of the age of the earth and biology together and like I said it's getting harder and harder to separate them now we basically already covered the question of ancestry in the, in the previous lecture patterns of DNA differences, shared DNA differences whenever we look in these, in these categories it becomes very difficult to separate uh, common ancestry or to make any answer to that question of ancestry uh, Dr. Venema asked a question about pseudogenes and could we use them to identify baromins. That, I think, gets the right direction. What is the function of DNA? But my answer to that is, we know less than five percent of what DNA does, based on gold standard genetic tests. I'd say probably less than one percent. If you use the gold standard, you know humans that have sections of DNA knocked out or disabled. 99 percent of it we haven't yet tested for function. How many of us would go to Russia if we spoke one percent of the language and tried to say, "This is a functional word. this is not?" I think it'd be hopeless. That's where we're at genetically. So this is an experiment in progress. The questions of ancestry are yet to be answered. That's an active area of research in young earth creation. And you think about historically, few people actually had to answer that question. The question of where does ancestry stop and start? The species fixity folks said nothing is related, basically. It was easy. Darwin swung the pendulum the other way. Everything's related. It's only when you are in the middle here, right, basically, that you have to begin to distinguish what are the lines of evidence for common ancestry, what are the lines not, as, as, you, as I implied, basically, in the previous lecture. Patterns, I mean, this is a question I'm interested in. I want to know what, what tools we can use. Patterns don't do a good job. They don't distinguish between ancestry and design. And, of course, ancestry and design are part of the Young Earth model. I'll explain more in a minute. Uh, it's really a question of function, and we have very little results very little results of experiments so far that can tell us what's functional and what's not. So really, what we're going to go and where we're going to go, and this is why the time scale is so important, we're going to go to the question of what do the number of DNA differences show? Not the patterns, not the function, but how many differences separate me from you, us from the primates, uh, primates from invertebrates. Those are the questions that we'll now use to try to answer the question of ancestry. And again, this, this is now very difficult to separate from the question of time. Dr. Venema already alluded to the two compartments that we'll be looking at. Uh, this is just now to put it in cellular terms. You might be able to see there on the screen. There's a there's a one and a two. The one designates a subcompartment of the nucleus. Two is that sort of lavender color. That's the main repository of DNA. That's the nuclear DNA. Uh, billions of letters from from each parent. And then there's the mitochondrial DNA, the energy factories. And in terms of raw DNA letters, and I'll explain what the letters mean in a moment. Little basic background in genetics. There's less than 17,000 mitochondrial DNA letters in our DNA, comes from mom. There's three to six billion in our nucleus so it's three billion if you're looking at a sperm or an egg, six billion in the rest of our cells. So because the mitochondrial DNA is simpler and inherited in in the manner that Dr. Venema described through the mothers, we're gonna focus on that first. It also has implications for the nucleus and we'll see how these two compartments interact scientifically and logically so here's the reason why it's only inherited through moms. Again, as, as Dr. Venma explained, when sperm meets egg in the oval circle, just circled, that DNA, billions of letters, fuses with the egg. The mitochondria are in the, towards the sperm tail. Those never penetrate. So that's why it's only through mom. And again, there's, there's just a summary diagram. Nuclear DNA from both parents, mitochondria only through the maternal line. Now, I'm going to use two analogies by and large for what DNA is, just so we're all on the same page. This is the one. This is the diagram of the structure I showed in the previous lecture. It's this twisted ladder-like structure. So there is the analogy number one. It's like a twisted ladder, and we'll we'll explore that a little bit further in a moment. I've also got letters assigned to it, and you might be able to see the different colors for those rungs of the ladder. So the second analogy is that DNA is like a language, and Dr. Venable explored that analogy at length. It has an alphabet. It's a chemical alphabet, and then there are only four letters in that alphabet: A, T, G, and C. So this is the structure that gets passed on in sperm and egg. It has to be copied first into sperm and egg. That copying process is imperfect. So you can think of it, you know, they're mutations. You can think of mutations as basically a color change in this diagram to the rungs of these ladders. Mistakes happen, copying errors happen. And because they happen, we then can compare two DNA sequences next to one another. So you can see in this diagram, there's, there's 20 rungs, 20 letters that I've compared for our mismatches due to the mutations that I animated. So we would say there's 80% difference between these two sequences, uh, or excuse me, 80% identity between these two sequences, 20% difference. You might say, well, how can you know you're lining up the right thing? Well, for humans, as an example, we share so much DNA, it's easy to line it up, match, 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 and every now and then a mismatch. So you can be fairly confident you're lining it up the right way. So the question is, what do the number of these DNA differences show? We can take the DNA from every one of you in this room, line it up and get a number. And this has been done now for all sorts of people groups around the planet. We have over 10,000 nuclear DNA sequences. We have over 30,000 mitochondrial DNA sequences in our public databases from individuals around the planet. So what do these differences show? We also have mitochondrial DNA sequences from over 6,000 animal species. and over 800 mammal species. So there's all sorts of comparative analyses we can do. You can find nested hierarchies in mitochondrial DNA sequences, but once again that fact, that pattern, doesn't distinguish between ancestry and design. So what about the number of DNA differences? This is where the time scale comes in. So evolution would say that all DNA differences ultimately are the result of mutation, this process of mistakes. And that the number of mutations in between any two species, particularly at the mitochondrial DNA level, is a product of the time scale since the last shared a Common Ancestor. So humans and chimpanzees, and I've shown an African woman here just because evolutionists would say the Africans evolved first. They Traditionally, they've been, uh, they put the time scale at 6 million years ago. Some would say 13 million, and I'll, I'll explain that more once we get to nuclear DNA. I'm just going to calculate it for the whole range. There are textbook equations for... Predicting the number of DNA differences over a certain time scale. When you're dealing with mitochondrial DNA in two different species, it's this equation. This is really all the math you need to know for this lecture. So the number of DNA differences is a product of the mutation rate times the time and times two because mutations are happening in each lineage and we count the differences by comparing the two to each other. We know the mutation rate in humans It's about one every five to eight generations. It's been the subject of over 15 studies, uh, highly contentious. Uh, also highly divergent in the amount of statistics each study weighted their, weighted their analysis with. So anyway, you distill all that away, it's about one mutation every five to eight generations. We don't know the rate in chimpanzees, so to, if for a starting point, we'll just assume it's the same. When we look at nuclear DNA, we'll see that this is a pretty fair assumption. So how, one mutation every five to eight generations. So think of it practically. Again, you know, I have my mother's mitochondrial DNA, my kids have my wife's. You'd have to go back one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight generations before you found a difference in my lineage. What would happen in six million years of this process in human females and our female ancestors and the chimpanzee female ancestors? Well, you can can put numbers on this. And at a minimum, and actually let me back up and make one more technical point I just realized, mutations per generation, but we're going to multiply that by years. So if you're thinking in math terms, the units don't line up. You have to convert mutations per generation to mutations per year. And the way you do that is by knowing something or assuming something about the ages at which females reproduce. Some women give birth in their teens, some women very late, maybe even 50 years old. So what we're going to do then to compensate for that range is calculate and make predictions over that entire range. And these are the results. So if all women were ages 50 in the human lineage, and all chimpanzee ancestors were ages 50 in the chimpanzee lineage over the past six million years, there would be a minimum of 28,000 differences that are predicted in between these two species. Now, I mentioned earlier that mitochondrial DNA sequence is only 16,000, 17,000 letters long. How can that be possible? What that means is you would have mutated position one, and then two at some point, and three, and all the way down to 16,569, and then you do it again. And again, that's, that's practically what it means. If all women were ages 15 over the last 6 million years, 13 million years, you'd have over 350,000 DNA differences. That's the top of that black line on average. If they're ages 25 or so, uh, 150,000 to 200,000 differences. So again, mutating over and over and over again. That's what it means. And you can see there on the right, the actual number of differences between our two species is only 1,400. And we'll talk about some potential explanations for this in a minute. What I want to do first is look at other evolutionary time points in our lineage. So evolutionists would say we split from Neanderthals about 40, 400,000 to 700,000 years ago. Uh, again, Africans evolving first in the modern human lineage. You could use a similar equation for this split. I'm going to treat the Neanderthals and humans as the same species, so you drop the two for technical reasons I won't get into. We can add the two back, uh, but I'm trying to be generous here, and you'll see why in a moment. So how many differences should accumulate between humans and Neanderthals in 400,000 to 700,000 years, we'll again use the human mutation rate, one mutation rate every five to eight generations, convert that to years, depending on how old women were when they gave birth. So if all women the last 400,000, 700,000 years were 50 years old when they gave birth, nearly 1,000 DNA differences would have accumulated between Neanderthals and humans. That's the bottom of that black line. If they're all ages 15, nearly 10,000, and then you know, on average 25, then uh, more like 5,000. And today, there's only 213 differences. So, again, another overprediction. Not as dramatic. We're not mutating every single letter, not every single rung of the DNA ladder, mitochondrial DNA ladder. One more time point, and then we'll talk about potential explanations. 200,000 years ago is the evolutionary origin for the modern human species. And as Dr. Benema alluded to, 50,000 ish, 75,000 ish years ago, non African people groups split off from the African people groups. We're all part of the same species, we use this same equation that we use for Neanderthals, how many differences would we see? If all women were ages 50 over the last 200,000 years, when they gave birth to those ancestors in our lineage, 477 at a minimum, bottom of that black line. Over 2,000, nearly 2,500, 3,000 if they're all ages 15. You can see an average of about 1,500. In Africans, there's only about 80 differences on average. Non-Africans, about 40. We'll talk about reasons for the differences between these two people groups in a moment. So what could be some potential explanations for this discrepancy? And these will become important, especially when we start discussing the nuclear DNA sequences. Could it be that we need to look at different levels of ancestry? Maybe we're too focused on human chimp or human Neanderthal. What if we go back further in time? We'll end up putting more differences in the actual column. Let's say humans and orangutans, humans and a rhesus monkey. But we'll also add to the predicted differences. So that wouldn't, that wouldn't solve the problem. What about the time scale? Now this is really interesting for two reasons. Uh, actually three. The third one is will, will arise when we discuss the nuclear DNA. What happens if you change the time scale? Well, the evolutionary time scale is interconnected, so you're gonna to have to rewrite, begin to rewrite significant sections of the evolutionary narrative. Second reason, or maybe now we're up to three, third reason this is significant, is thinking more deeply about how the evolutionary time scale, specifically in geology and astronomy, is established. It's established on the assumption of fairly constant rates of change. Why do I say that? Because young earth creation astronomers and geologists have questioned that assumption for many years. They'd say in geology, as an example, that Noah's flood, a global flood, would dramatically alter rates of erosion, deposition, so forth. That the rates we see in the present would not be a good indicator of the rates in times past. Well, now I've taken that assumption to genetics, I've assumed constant rates of change. And it gives you the opposite conclusion. So, that begins to create some logical dilemmas there as well. Now, the third explanation, which is probably the most likely, is well, what about natural selection? Could natural selection play a role? Plausibly, the answer is yes. Mitochondrial DNA encodes for some of the key proteins in our, uh, in, that function in mitochondria. Now, your heart is highly dependent on mitochondria. You're sitting here breathing, listening to me because you have functional mitochondria. So, what would happen if your mitochondria got hit with a whole bunch of mutations? You might pass, you know, kill over and die. So that would seem a priori to be a fairly decent explanation. So we'll go with that for the moment. And we'll raise that question again when we look at DNA. But there's another question we need to ask, and I'm going to go back to Dennis Venema's book again about uh, how you define a hypothesis and a theory. One of the defining features uh, of a good theory is that it makes accurate predictions about the natural world. And this isn't just Dr. Venema. He's here today. We're discussing with one another. I'm using this. But you can go to evolutionary textbooks. You can look at the history of the creation-evolution debate. This is primarily uh, the major arena of criticisms of the Young Earth model or the creationist model in general. Evolutionists have said for years, you creationists say God did it. How does that advance science? What testable predictions does that make? How does it advance our understanding of the natural world? And you can see if you've ever done any sort of science or you can just believe me when I say it, if you haven't. Let's say you're doing an experiment. I'm I'm trying to understand how cancer works. I've got this drug that I think is a potential candidate. I'm going to test it in the lab. It doesn't work. Oh, God did it. How does that advance science? How does that lead us to the cure? You can see why, why that, would, that sort of idea would be a, a strong challenge to the creationist view, at least on the surface. My point in bringing it up here is it's an, the sword cuts both ways. Let's say natural selection is the explanation for the discrepancy. What testable predictions does that make? For example... One of the most divergent people groups on the planet, most mitochondrial DNA differences, are the Khoisan peoples, or the click speakers of uh, southwest Africa. No one has measured the mutation rate in the Khoisan peoples. What What testable predictions about the mutation rate in these peoples does the hypothesis of natural selection make? That's really the challenge, not even from my own lips. That's the challenge the evolutionary community has to meet because they said it. They set that standard. And it's a good standard. It arises just out of the nature of science. Let me throw out another hypothesis that could explain these data. Of course, I'm going to go here because I'm a young earth creationist. We would say all peoples arose go back to Adam and Eve. Uh, So we'd say in the beginning, Adam and Eve both had mitochondrial DNA. Adam is a man. He doesn't pass it on. So we go back to a mitochondrial Eve who lived 6,000 years ago. Uh, So the differences we see today should be a a, a product of the mutation rate one mutation rate every five to eight generations, times 6,000 years. And when you do this prediction, if all women were ages 50 over the last 6,000 years, there would be around 15 differences in the global human population today. If all women were ages 15, there would be around 80 differences. And you can see that this range of predictions, the top and bottom of that black bar, captures what we see today, about 80 differences in African people groups, About 40 in non-Africans. You can say, okay, the non-Africans, that fits maybe an age of about 25 years on average, what we kind of see today. Isn't that straining things to say that all African women would have been ages 15? Yes, and maybe not. Why? Because we have data from the United Nations. Take Let's say the data from 1976. Marriage data is not the same thing as age of reproduction, but there's probably going to be a correlation. So 1976 data... How old were women married? And the, and the data now is in terms of nations: African nations, non-African nations. If you look at, let's say, ages 30 to 34, the column sort of near the middle of this, you can see the percentage of African women who were married it was around 80 percent. The percentage of non-African women about 77 percent. Hardly any difference. If you look at the early ages, so the top row, first column, there on the left, how many African women were married at ages 15 and 19? 33 percent, nearly a third, exactly a third. How many non-African women? Only about eleven, ten percent. That's about a two to three-fold difference. That's about a two-fold difference right there. Now, that's data from 1976. That doesn't mean this has been historically true. But you're beginning to see how there might be another explanation for why there's various differences between Africans and non-Africans that have nothing to do with who originated first, but rather people-group specific differences. I'll explore that question and return to it later. I want to show you this tree, though. This is uh, several hundred human individuals. I think Dr. Venema showed you a, a tree also. Uh, the, the tips of these branches represent individuals. Way off to the right would, is where you'd find some of the Khoisan peoples. They, are, they have very long branches. Now, the length of each line, there they are really strong parallels to a family tree here. So if you look at a family tree, that the amount of difference... Uh, The distance between two peoples would be the number of generations. This is not a display of generations per se, but the number of mitochondrial DNA differences. So if you have a very long line, a lot of DNA differences. If you have a short line, hardly any. And the way you find the difference between any two people is you find the tip, let's say, at one of these Khoisan peoples, and you trace that line back to where it connects to another person, and that tells you the amount of difference. There are some things I want you to notice about this tree. So this is from various people groups around the globe. Notice how so many of these lines come together into three nodes, and that's not an artifact. This is a fact the evolutionary community recognizes. These, they call them haplogroups. This is the L, M, and N haplogroups. The second thing I want you to notice, not only is there th- three major groupings, you might see well, there's, there's some subgroupings. There are subgroupings, and we'll talk about them in a moment. I want you to notice the length of the lines that connect these three major groups. I've highlighted them here in blue. They're fairly short. So the lines connecting the groups are short. The lines radiating out from these groups are long. And we can draw an even longer one for the Africans, or I, guess, I guess, that direction. Let's think about this tree then from a young earth perspective. What would be the maternal ancestry from our reading of scripture? It would go back to Eve. Population would grow. Shrink to eight at the time of the flood. Regrow again. Briefly. Split at the Tower of Babel into multiple people groups. And then the rest is history. So, there were two, actually you could probably say three major bottlenecks. So you have creation, Adam, and Eve. Then you have eight people at the flood. And then the different groups at the time of the Tower of Babel. So you've got short branches among the three major groups, longer branches radiating out. Let's think in terms of time now. You have from Genesis 5, you take those stamps, time stamps, plainly for the paternal lineage. You've got about 1,700 years between Adam and the flood, but only 10 generations. They lived long. And then you see, after the flood, you know, roughly, we'd say, probably 4,200, 4,500 4, years. So there's a, that's about a three-to-one ratio, almost, between post-flood time and pre-flood time. And, if, and the difference gets bigger once you think in terms of generations. It'd probably be fair to say that maternal ancestry was also long pre-flood. Excuse me, mater- m- maternal lifespan, just like paternal lifespan in Genesis 5 would have been long pre-flood, shorter post-flood. So you'd predict that pre-flood mutations would have few opportunities, few generations. Post-flood there have been much more generations. So what are these three nodes? I just gave away the answer and I meant to build up to the punchline in a minute. (laughs) So there's Eve in the beginning, one Eve, then the ancestry shrinks to what? You have eight people, Noah, Mrs. Noah, three boys and their wives. Three boys get their mitochondrial DNA from Mrs. Noah. And then it stops. Genesis 9, from these three, the whole world world was repopulated. We don't get our mitochondrial DNA from them. We get it from their three wives. So the fact that this then breaks into three with relative branch lengths that fit the relative time proportions seems to fit this biblical model. Short pre-flood times, those blue bars separating the three wives. Scripture doesn't say if they were sisters or more distantly related. And then lots of generations post-flood, those pink bars. So the structure and relative branch proportions and the absolute numbers, three independent lines of evidence, all fit what we see in mitochondrial DNA. Well, what about these subnodes? This model makes testable predictions. If we're all coming from those three nodes, and DNA differences are a marker of time, what we're looking at then when you radiate out from those nodes is post-flood time. In other words, the history of civilization. This model predicts you should be able to read the history of civilization Off this tree. The history of the Roman Empire, the history of the Persian Empire, the history of all the Greeks should be here. So, what about this subnode? You see that it's coming off one of the major three nodes, and about halfway up it begins branching. Where do these, so the, the tips of these branches are individuals. Where do these individuals exist today? So, let's put this together. I just hit the wrong button. Back up one. And I didn't want to hit that, so let me go back this way. There we go. So you can see in terms of relative time, about there, there's a branch that goes up from that node, then about halfway up that branch it splits off. So what would be half of 4,200, 4,500? 4, it's 2,000-ish, 2, 2,300 years ago. What happened 2,000-ish, 2, 2,300 years ago around this section of the globe? The Roman Empire covered this section of the globe. So this is just the beginning of the sorts of studies we're, we're doing. And in fact, if we had time, I could tell you some really electrifying results that we've been doing with the paternal ancestry, the Y-chromosome. We've Rob Carter and I have been doing this, Creation Ministries International. We've been able to date the transatlantic slave trade. We're looking at the signature of colonialism. This is really working. It's really incredible. And that's not the only testable prediction it makes. Let's go back to the Khoisan peoples. Where are they? Way out there. I said the average number of differences is about 80 in Africans. The mutation rate has yet to be measured in some of these most divergent African people groups. The mutation rate I'm using has been measured in non-African people groups. So I would predict then, and this is a testable prediction, a falsifiable prediction, that the mutation rate will be one to five to eight generations, perhaps faster one to one every 2.5 to four. So the prediction will be one every 2.5 to eight generations. You can test that in the lab as soon as some Khoisan people give us their DNA. And these results we're focusing on humans these results are true of the other species in which we have measured mitochondrial DNA mutation rates. It's in the book chapter. I've got published papers on this. Uh, we don't have time to go into it. So you, and why am I only showing four other species? You think of the history of genetics. It's only recently that we've gotten DNA sequences. It's even more challenging to get the mutation rates. So that's why you know, there's, there's attrition the number of species with DNA sequences is a lot more than the number of mutation rates. This is the data that we got. And it's all pointing towards a 6,000-year timescale and challenges a 1000000s of years time timescale. So that's mitochondrial DNA. What about the nuclear DNA? Let's once again make testable predictions. The question is, how do, what are the number of DNA differences? Patterns don't tell us much. Function is still an experiment in progress. That'll take a long time to figure out. What do the number of DNA differences show? What do they tell us about our ancestry? And again, let's go with the evolutionary model first. Evolutionists would say about 6 million years ago, 4.5 to 6 million years ago, that's traditionally been the answer. Uh, human lineage and chimpanzee lineage split, African peoples first, which is why I'm showing the African lady. Uh, BioLogos website has used the number 6 million. You can see it here, genetic evidence revolution. evolution. So let's go with 6 million first, and there's a reason why I'm going to do this. Uh, we'll use a similar equation. That's actually the equation that the authors of the chimpanzee mutation rate paper used. So in this case now, nuclear DNA, we have the human mutation rate, which has been measured numerous times in the nucleus. Uh, That happened first, 2014. The chimpanzee mutation rate has been measured. They use this equation. How many differences should exist between humans and chimpanzees? It predicts about half of what we see. Now let me do a a segue here. Uh, Dr. Benhamad mentioned Jeff Tompkins. We're comparing 2.2 billion of our total letters. The total number of letters in humans and chimpanzees is over 3 billion. So where we align... So they're looking at a particular type of DNA change, SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms is the technical term. There are other sections you can read in Dr. Venema's book how you get to 95%. Well, there are also whole chunks that are not found in either species. You can see that in the original chimpanzee genome paper. You can get a number of about 89% identical if you include the single-letter differences, the chunk differences, and the big chunks that are missing in in either case. That's been Jeff Tompkins' point all along. You see in the chimpanzee paper, 89% only matches up. You can find a match. You see in the bonobo paper, uh, so sort of another chimpanzee species. You see it in the gorilla paper. You see it on on the Ensemble website, one of the public... Uh, repositories of nuclear information, there's only 89% that can find some sort of match. In that 89% you can find 95, 98% identity. But the overall number of differences is upwards of 300 million if you include everything. So there's a big, big gap. If we focus on those to which this, uh, only those sections to which this mutation rate applies, As the authors of the chimpanzee genome paper point out, six million differences predicts only half of what we see. So if we say, let's just focus on that 1% difference, you can only get half of that by mutation. So what's the explanation? We're not gonna change ancestry. That'll run into problems. What about time scale? Well, if you bump the time scale back to 11 to 17 million years, around 13, 14 million years, you exactly capture the difference that we see. That's the option that the authors of the chimpanzee genome paper published. That was their conclusion. We should bump back the timescale. You can read it for yourself, Science Magazine, 2014. Venn is the first author. What questions does that raise? The evolutionary timescale is interconnected. So if you're going to bump back one part of the timescale, well, you're going to bump back the chimp-human lineage split from the gorilla split, and then the gorilla-chimp-human split from the orangutan split, and the great apes from the other monkeys. Or from monkeys, I should say. So chimpanzee-human, if we bump that back from 6 million to 14 million, chimpanzee-gorilla from 6 to 8 million to 21 million, gorilla-orangutan from 12 to 16 million to 40 million, you're going to have to bump back the rhesus-macaque-orangutan the uh, split to 74 million years ago. Why is that significant? The evolutionary timescale puts the extinction of the dinosaurs at 65 million years ago. The first primate fossils are found around 55 million years ago. You're pushing back even this split beyond the first primate fossils. So you can see what happens when you start to rewrite the evolutionary time scale. That's what the authors went with. That's not my conclusion, that's theirs. Now, natural selection. Why am I bringing this up again? Well, let's go back to mitochondrial DNA, because these two compartments go together, nucleus and mitochondria. So the evolutionists, the, the authors of the chimpanzee paper are saying, let's bump the timescale back 13 million years. That means you're going to have to do the same thing in mitochondrial DNA. The minimum number of differences is not 28,000. It's now 61, 62,000. Well, natural selection can eliminate 28,000. It can eliminate 62,000. Okay, natural selection here. What about here? What about in the nucleus? What role does natural selection play? By definition, it cannot play any role in this question because the original prediction was an underestimate. If natural selection functions to eliminate differences in mitochondria, you cannot eliminate any more differences in nucleus without making this discrepancy worse. So that raises the question, when does natural selection apply, when does it not? And I can even put it in the language of the evolutionists from 50 years ago. They say, God did it, stifles science. Natural selection did it. Is that really what we're looking at now? Is that the state of evolutionary science? What creationism was accused of being 50 years ago? There's actually a fourth explanation. And I want to illustrate it from the evolutionary explanation for the origin of modern humans. So we could say, okay... Our species, our, the modern human species, originated 200,000 years ago by the evolutionary time scale. We'd use a similar equation. Now, this technically, this equation is a function of population size. I'll show you why I'm ignoring it for the moment, because it's going to be an underestimate. I'll show you in a minute. We'll use this equation to predict how many mutational differences should, should arise over 200,000 years, and it's only about 500,000. And today, in African peoples, in our nuclear DNA, there's about 4.3 million letters difference. In non-Africans, it's less than that, 3 to 4 million. And you only predict about 10, 12% of that. So is this an erroneous prediction? I said earlier, does evolution explain all differences by mutation? Ultimately, yes. Each generation, no. Why would I say that? Well, let's go back to this diagram and the modes of inheritance. So mitochondrial DNA is maternal, nuclear DNA is from both parents. Now, none of us in this room are gonna have parents who are clones of each other. In fact, probably everyone in this room does not have parents who are even close relatives. So your parents will have different DNA sequences. They will each pass on a DNA sequence to offspring. So that means this offspring is gonna look different genetically than the parents. What percentage of those differences are due to mutations each generation? Less than 0.1%. Most of the differences you have within your body, and I'll explain what I mean more in a moment, are due to inheritance, the pre-existing variety. So that's what the evolutionists would invoke here, that our species originated 200,000 years ago, but we've been mutating back to the split with the chimpanzee lineage, and so those from 6 million, 13 million years ago to then, those mutations were accumulating, and it's going to be a function of population size, but then those were inherited, and the vast majority of the differences between me and you are due to that and not to mutations in the last 200,000 years. So they'd say inheritance. So that raises also the question, when does that apply, When does it not? Could we apply it to the human chimpanzee question, the chimpanzee gorilla question? Well, now let's get to the creationist model, and this will get us then closer to the Adam and Eve question, but you see why we have to cover these These questions first and hopefully you're also able to see that the questions of ancestry and time are interlinked. Biology is not neutral on the time scale. You have to deal with it. So in 6,000 years obviously you're going to explain just a tiny, tiny fraction of what we see today. But if evolutionists invoke inherited differences, why can't I? Now you might say inherited from what? You're not invoking six million years of ancestry. So let me answer the question by asking you a question and see if you can answer it. You don't have to say it out loud. So let's, I'm, I'm going to speak now to those who maybe would, would hold to a literal Adam and Eve. You read Genesis 1. God says, be fruitful and multiply. Do you, think he said, do, you, do you think he intended for that command to be fulfilled by cloning? Well, what a weird question. Why would you ask that? Well, if you think that's weird and you'd say, no, that yeah, was what a, what a strange answer. No, I don't think that's what he meant. You've basically acknowledged a particular genetic view without realizing it. So this is just a little bit more genetic background. So, I've said DNA is like that twisted ladder like structure. You can see that in the lower left hand corner. Uh, it's also like a language, A, T, G, and C. You can see those color coded there. Well, DNA doesn't exist in this billion, la- you know, billion rung long ladder that just kind of sticks out the end of a cell and pokes through. It's, it's wound up and gets wound up in, in very tightly when cells divide and it forms these X like structures that are chromosomes. And this is a real diagram picture of human chromosomes. And I want you to notice something here, and this will explain more what I was saying about 99.9% of our differences being inherited. Notice that there are some large chromosomes. Now, these are real chromosomes, so they weren't nicely electronically lined up. They're kind of floppy. These you know, noodles is what you can think of them as. Wet noodles. And there's some small chromosomes. But notice that for every long chromosome, there's a corresponding pair. And for every small one, there's another corresponding small one. So the fact here that I want you to see is that chromosomes come in pairs. And in our our DNA, there's 23 pairs of chromosomes, 46 in total. Now, you might notice in number 23 that there's a long paired with a short. That's the sex chromosomes. This is an XY individual. Y is short. X is long. This is a male. Females would be XX. Now, let's just focus on chromosome 1. It'll help us understand what's going on here in the the biparental mode of inheritance. So we have pairs of chromosomes because one member of each pair comes from each parent. So you can diagram it you know, crudely this way. Dad contributes one member of each of the 23 pairs. Mom contributes one other member. Now, it's not like dad contributes the information for the right arm and mom for the left. They both contribute for the entire body, and then in a way we don't, still don't fully understand, but it was something that Mendel observed. They, they interact, and, and, and your unique characteristics come out of that. So, back to the question, did God create Adam and Eve to reproduce by cloning? If your answer is yes, that means Adam had DNA sequences like this. He wouldn't have had just, you know, 23 individual chromosomes, not 23 pairs. That's lethal. So, he would have had pairs like this. If you say Adam and Eve reproduced by cloning, he looks like this. If your answer is no, which is my guess is what most of you would say, that means you're proposing Adam was created with differences, or Adam and Eve were created with differences between one another you're basically saying there were pre-existing differences created into Adam and Eve. If you say, no, they did not reproduce by cloning. That's where these pre-existing differences would come from. So, mutations contribute very little. Inherited differences contribute a lot. This is simply using a page from the evolutionary playbook in terms of the last 200,000 years under their model. I'm just putting a different number on it. What would be the signature of this? Scientific ideas make testable predictions. Well, here's, once again, the, the model of population growth that I described earlier. Adam and Eve, two people, then they grow massively. Uh, Earth gets, gets filled, gets filled with sinful people who apparently were violent, so God decides to wipe them all out at the time of the flood. Population shrinks to eight. They grow again quickly. You look at how many people, how many children each of the patriarchs had in Genesis 10. It's, it's massive population growth. Splits at Babel, and then the rest is history. Now, let me summarize a lot of population genetic theory here. Uh, In a moment. I'll use a simple illustration. So the the average rate of nuclear mutations Between generations is about 80. It depends on the the father's age and so forth, but on average about 80 So that means there's about 80 mutations that my son has that neither me and my wife have Now what's the chance that his 80? Rungs 80 letter differences are going to spread around to the 7 billion people on this planet. It's virtually zero So population genetics theory is when the population size is large, new mutations are statistically rare. So if this is your population model, the signature of this event would be a large number of rare differences. Evolutionists acknowledge this. You can look at the evolutionary literature. They say uh, there's an excess of rare variants in our population due to recent explosive population growth. You can actually predict this. The number of rare differences is quantifiable in our population. and It fits exactly what you would see after 6,000 years. This is the signature of the creation flood bottlenecks. There's another signature. So if this was Adam's DNA, two different versions, even though he had no human parents, God creates him with the potential to, for diversity this gets recombined, chunks of the chromosomes get swapped there's actually two processes, recombination swaps big chunks there's another process called gene conversion that sometimes just swaps single single letters so these original chromosomes will get all mixed up over time and you can see these chunks scientists would refer to these as haplotype blocks, that's a technical term you can predict how many haplotype blocks you should see in the human population today and you see them you see exactly what you'd expect to see from the Young Earth model. This makes these are now, let me, let me stop here for a moment. Most of what I've shown you is actually not a prediction, it's a retrodiction, taking what we see today and saying, does it fit this model? Yes or no? Prediction is saying things for the future that have yet to be investigated. So I gave you some of those for mitochondrial DNA, the Khoisan people mutation rate, reading the history of civilization off, nucle, uh, off mitochondrial DNA, you should be able to do the same thing here. It's a little bit more complicated because you're dealing with a mutational process and a pre existing inheritance process. Uh, if you're interested, I can tell you how. Uh, I'll, I'll be giving a complicated diagram in my book this fall that shows how this could give you a relative order of events. So that's the first two questions, ancestry and time scale. And I've given you some arguments for a recent origin, and I've shown you things that are consistent with coming from Adam and Eve. Now, Dr. Venema says in his book, and this is not to be contentious, but... This is a dialogue. He says, to date, every genetic analysis estimating ancestral population size has agreed that we're descended from a population of thousands, not single. Now, Rob Carter has published the preliminary data that I've just shown you here as much as six years ago. He's published a number of papers modeling biblical population growth, very detailed simulations of population growth and crash. The data I just showed you I published last April, a year ago. Uh, So these data that I just showed you are found in that paper. So I would say it's incorrect to say that every genetic analysis agrees that we're coming from 1,000. What about the claim that many of these methods are independent of one another? That's in one sense true, but there are also some assumptions that are common to all the methods, the three lines of evidence that Dr. Venema showed you that are also in this book. One, assuming that mutations are the source of all variety, and two, they assume a long time scale, and the third one, of course, assumes common ancestry. So one of the lines of evidence that I think he included in the book and has been published elsewhere is that there are too many differences to explain from two people over 6,000 years. That's true only if mutations are the source of all DNA differences, if you include pre-existing differences. Basically, if you say that no, God did not create Adam and Eve to reproduce by cloning, this, this argument goes away. He also made an argument from linkage disequilibrium, though I don't think he used that technical term and... We're all happier for it, because He makes a funny story in his book about why scientists come up with these crazy terms. So I'm going to spare you the math details and just give you the principle. It comes from basic population genetics. And pretty much all the arguments for or against an ancestral population size are statistical in nature. This is how it works. I'm going to use a silly example just to illustrate the point. Let's say uh, you reach into a jar of jelly beans and pulling a handful out or a certain number out. I'm going to use this to simulate the process of reproduction. You might think that these jelly beans represent individuals in a population, instead they represent sperm and eggs, so this is weird, but population genetics is weird. sorry so what would be what would what would a bottleneck look like? You think, well, you just take one sample out and then you take two, and, and you can do statistics for this, and what's the chance that both are going to be pink or both are going to be black? So in this case, sperm and egg, because we're dealing with nuclear DNA, you actually have to pull out four jelly beans. there's a chance whoops there's a. There's a chance that all four are pink, and I'm oversimplifying this. Normally, discussions deal with multiple generations, but screen is only so long, so I'm going to deal with one. There's a chance, statistically, that these are all pink. More likely, there's a chance that you'll have a, 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 a not 50-50 split, and that over time, as you, as you, if you keep the population size small, statistically, then, you'll lose variance, and eventually, the population will be fairly homogeneous. Now, I'm using this as an example of one particular dna position you could do this for you know there's millions of differences among us so you'd have to do it for millions of colors but that gets messy too and it doesn't matter which color you pick you know the principle is the same you pick out a few statistically then over time your population has a strong probability of being homogeneous and let me contrast then to uh, a non-bottleneck basically So if you take a handful of jelly beans, all of them, dump them out, and you you say they they reproduce themselves, and this is going to be the basis for another population, well, you're you're almost guaranteed to not lose anything. It's It's a statistical argument. Again, in contrast to a bottleneck, you're going to become fairly homogeneous. So how do calculations of ancestral population size work? We're basically starting like this. We don't have the history, we just have... What we see today. Is there a lot of differences or are there a few differences? Does it look like we went through a bottleneck? Does it look like we've always been this handful, big handful, the whole jar? And that's really essentially the various lines of evidence that Dr. Venema has presented. This is basically what he's saying. We have, we have a lot of differences. It doesn't look like we passed through a bottleneck. It fails to reject the hypothesis of a population. It does reject the hypothesis of this particular bottleneck. Well, it also fails to reject the hypothesis that God created Adam and Eve with created differences and that they grew exponentially. What happens if you have created DNA differences? And let me back up here. Again, I've shown four because Adam and Eve each have two copies. So they're going to reproduce, but they're going to reproduce a lot, be fruitful and multiply. So they're going to produce a large population of individuals virtually guaranteeing that nothing is lost. And in in technical terms, the math equations you'd use to calculate population size with the exponential population growth change. So the the evolutionary literature fails to reject this hypothesis. It's essentially a straw man to say that these lines of evidence reject it. And then, of course, the last line of evidence, independent lineage sorting, assumes human primate common ancestry. So if you assume the evolutionary ancestry, then you can make calculations that argue for population size. So I would argue, in contrast to what he claims in the book, that every genetic analysis rejects Adam and Eve only if you exclude certain explanations and hypotheses from the start. He also claims in his book, anti-evolutionary scholars have not yet mounted a convincing response to population genetics evidence, nor is it clear that they will be able to do so, since there does not appear to be anyone in the anti-evolutionary camp at present with the necessary training to properly understand the evidence, much less to offer a compelling case against it. I'll let that stand as it is. So here's the four questions that we've discussed, that I discussed in the book chapter. On the question of ancestry, the major arena in which the predictions will be tested is in the arena of function. Patterns do not distinguish between the various models. Function is the arena, and unfortunately we know less than, probably only about 1%. We've only done experiments on 1% of our DNA in terms of gold standard. Timescale, hopefully what you've seen in this hour is that the Young Earth model makes testable, falsifiable predictions that we can go into lab today, tomorrow, and explore to see if they're true. For the people groups, and in fact, you know, again if we have more time, this hour is focused on humans, I can make predictions now for species around the planet. This isn't just limited to the origin of the human species. You've seen that the Young Earth model from Adam and Eve makes testable predictions. I've, I've made retrodictions mainly, but you can see there's predictions as well, reading the history off of our DNA sequence. And again, if we had time to look at Y chromosome, I think there's really some some electrifying results that are showing up there. Hopefully what you've also seen is an indirect answer to the question of geography. Why are there differences between Africans and non-Africans? Why is there more diversity in Africans than non-Africans? So, I've shown you marriage data that will affect mutation rates. What I didn't show you is a paper from 2011 looking at recombination rates in African-Americans. And what they found is that the rate is faster. And the authors actually concluded in that paper saying, and I, and I could show you the, the quote, uh, that, oh, maybe there's more to the African differences than just different size population bottlenecks out of Africa. They basically conceded there's genetic differences between these populations that may have nothing to do with their history. So I would say the argument that, that the evidence is consistent with the simultaneous origin of the major ethnolinguistic groups consistent with the Tower of Babel. Now, Scott McKnight says, and on the biologists website, when he was, uh, they, they ran a series promoting the, the book, he said, I'll put, Scott McKnight says, I'll put this stronger. If you don't accept Dennis Venema's section, then my section of the book need not be read. So basically, he says, you know, we're, we're reading scripture after genomic science. Well, let's flip the argument around. In light of what I've just shown you, what can we say about Paul's arguments in Romans 5. What can we say about Paul's arguments in 1 Corinthians 15? I think it puts, sheds new light on the subject. What's the significance of what I've just shown you? Once again, I think we've come a long way from the 1950s. The Young Earth model has matured significantly. And this is, to me, just a function of time. Many, again, would point to the publication of the Genesis Flood in 1961 as the beginning of the modern Young Earth creationist revival. And at the beginning, you're, you're starting it, so you're going to have few people to go along with you. And you're also taking on a massive scientific enterprise. So, the posture the early young earth creationists took was largely defensive. It's just a natural consequences. Evolutionists would say this, and young earth would say, well, n- not so fast. Well, what about this? And here are some problems. Fast forward to today, I would be a second-generation, if not a third-generation Young Earth creationist. We've got a large community of scientists who work on things together. On top of that, we finally got access to the genetic data, the most important scientific data in this debate, and it is freely available. So people can sit, you can sit at your laptop, if, if you know the right tools, and do your own analysis. Because all this data is out there. So you've got a bigger community, a whole lot more data that's freely available. This evens the playing field and allows young earth scientists to make testable predictions. And I would say that actually exceed the testable predictions, the ability of the evolutionary model. And it exceeds it, and this is, I think, really the kicker, on the most important arena of genetics. What is the mechanism of evolution? It is the mutation rate. It's mutations over time. That's the ultimate explanation. And it is the young earth model that is taking the lead in this field, the most fundamental aspect, the mechanism of the evolutionary model. So Dr. Menem again, has a, has a fantastic intro in his first chapter, Hypothesis That Is Not Rejected. After many predictions and tests, becomes a broad explanatory framework. makes Acker predictions about the real world, a theory. He would say evolution has, it fits that definition. I would say young earth creation fits that definition. It remains a productive explanatory framework. Hopefully that's what you've seen this hour. Not only has it been failed to be rejected over 50 years, it remains a very productive and fruitful explanatory framework. We're Working on the research questions right now, I think it's extremely exciting. Anyway, you can see my excitement. The question for you, of course, is... Bigger picture. This is one small drop in a very bigger debate. Who do you trust? That's going to be the question. And whoever you trust... How do you explain the other side? So... Hopefully what you've seen explains for you then why I'm titling my book Replacing Darwin because I think we've gone beyond rebutting Darwin. That's, that was the defensive strategy of decades ago. Now we've advanced so quickly. I think we can actually replace Darwin and roles have now been reversed. That's what I'd argue and we will be arguing in this book. You can get uh, the book chapter in, in chapter 10 of Searching for Adam is available on our table. We actually have four books out there. Normally retail for 72 bucks. You can get them for 20. So it's a real saver. Again, we didn't have time to, to, to discuss the, the bigger general question, how do you get tens of thousands of species from just a few on the ark in a, a few thousand years? That's what I cover in this, this lay article series and much more in-depth in my technical papers. So, thank you so much for, again for the invitation, for the opportunity to present to you, and for, for staying on this, this late evening.